the athlete mindset is about, you know, what do I need to do to be better? And, you know, definitely supplements are a concept that is easy to align with performance. You know, we use terms like ergogenic in regards to its performance enhancing. If you're telling me that you're classifying supplements based on how much they improve performance, well, then they must improve performance. So therefore, I'm going to take them because that's what I'm all about. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name's Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are debating out on their training run or ride in a coffee shop afterwards or jumping on Google to try and figure it out or on social media. And so we'll take one of those questions, break it down and invite a guest expert in our A episode uh, or an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their perspective as well. So... How are you going today, Steph? I'm good, Al. I'm good. Uh, yeah, all all moved in. As you know, I had a bit of fun with that this weekend. So, yeah, um, feeling good now. Mm. Organised, organised, but sitting on the floor at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Not all the furniture's yeah. there yet. Yep, just got the internet installed after a fair few hours, but, yeah, um, yep. all set. Yep. Yep, we've been sitting here waiting for the internet connection to do this recording. <laughs> and actually, good news, I got um, both of my bikes serviced over the weekend, so my mountain bike is ready nice. for a, a ride with you again. Awesome, mm. awesome. Mm. Looking forward to yep. that. Yeah. How's your week been? The sports nutrition course for, for dietitians oh, started right. last week, and so there was a mad scramble with some of the admin side of things getting that up and running, and we've changed a few things around this time, so it's been getting all of that in place and up and running, so... Hopefully it's all running smoothly now. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I know there's a fair few people I know that are doing that course and are excited about it. So, yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah. All right, well, today's episode, Steph, let's get into what our topic is, who our guest mm. is, and mm. what we're going to cover. Yeah, so we've got, we're up to episode 34A, and the question is, would I benefit from supplements? And we are very spoilt to have Greg Shaw, who's the nutrition lead for Swimming Australia and um, performance manager for Open Water Swimming. Um, Greg's done a lot of work with athletes around supplements and he's done research on supplement use in elite athletes. He's also heavily um, involved in the Australian Institute of Sports Sports Supplements um, Framework. Um, and yeah, we're basically going to uh, discuss what we define as a as a supplement, um, and that, as we know, can be quite a grey area. Um, whether you know something's a food, or it's a supplement, or it's a pharmaceutical um, uh, agent. So Greg talks about that. Um, he talks about his approach working out if supplements may um, or may not be beneficial for an individual athlete. And um, also looks at changing our mindset around supplements. Um, so instead going from magic pills and powders that make us faster um, to convenient sources of nutrients that optimise our stores um, and allow the body to perform optimally. 
Uh, and then he goes through the questions that we need to ask ourselves when we are considering whether it's worthwhile taking a, a supplement um, or not. So is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to be detrimental? Um, uh, so, yeah, sort of walking us through the things we need to consider when we determine that. Yeah. All right, let's have a look at social media Steph, we've had a few people get in touch with us at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, what's been happening on Instagram this week? Yeah, so um, we've had uh, Megan now. Al, you, you give me these challenging surnames. What, what do you reckon? I'm going to guess Kookman. Kookman? Yep. Yeah, I'm not really sure. All right, well, it's your fault if we've gotten that wrong. Yeah, exactly. So. Apologies, Megan. We should have just said Megan. Yeah. Um, so Megan's a, a dietitian and she was um, really enjoyed episode 32B with Hilary Stellingworth, um, which was around nutrition and the menstrual cycle. Um, and she said, highly recommend giving this a listen. Well done, The Long Munch and Hilary Stellingworth. Um, and then she was also really enjoyed last week's episode with Alex Hutchinson. Um, and she said, as a Canadian living in Canberra, I love the Canberra shout out in this episode. Yeah, I, I imagine Canberra doesn't get all that many shout outs. So <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, and she really enjoyed the content on continuous glucose monitors. We also had Maddie contact us. And um, yeah, she's given us a, a question to look at. So she said, would love to ask to what extent does genetics, training load and intentional dietary manipulation influence elite athletes body composition um, and she's wondering since they're so lean whether um, genetically larger people would just be less likely to make it to that elite level or whether it's the intense training that results in um, such a low body fat percentage uh, and she said thank you so much for always producing such interesting thought-provoking well-worded podcasts and I'm pretty sure when she says well-worded she's referring to you Al. Um, Maybe add a guest. <laughs> and yeah also Twitter. Yeah yeah we had Angela Davies contact us and she's contacted us before uh, last year I think it was and she was saying uh, in response to last week's episode with Alex Hutchinson around continuous glucose monitors she loved Guest Alex and glucose monitors helped me decide not to get one just yet. And we talked about the fact that apart from being hard to get in a lot of places in the world still, um, I guess the technology or more so, I guess, the interpretation of the data and what it actually means and what are the actionable items from it probably isn't there yet. And so you can be an early adopter and have all this data but not really know what to do with it. Uh, and even probably the experts still don't really 100% know what to do with that data so that's a that's a good point um and she's also interested in that concept i guess similar to maddie really of um mm. can you outrun a bad diet so that might be something that we have a look at in a future podcast episode maybe both in terms of the elite athletes that maddie was mentioning but maybe in terms of you know the rest of us um is maybe what's more what angela was referring to there mm. and now steph I'm sure you, you do because you always do have feedback from people as you go about your day-to-day -day life or you've been too busy, unless the removalists listened to the podcast and gave you feedback. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I did chat to the removalists and spoke about um, what, what I do, but, uh, yeah, so maybe we'll get him um, listening. Uh, but, 
Yeah, not really. Uh, I went for a run with um, Andrew White, who's going to do Buffalo, and um, he was he's been stoked. He, I think, was really happy when we did the episode about um, the menstrual cycle and changing training about that, just because he's he's a coach and um, he just sees you know a lot of myths out there about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he's quite thankful for for us sending that message out. So yeah, 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 yeah. awesome. All right, and just a reminder: if you have any feedback or you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us on social media at the Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And yeah, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Steph, it's come to that time in our A episode where there's a little niggling issue or topic or something you heard someone say along the way or just a concept that kind of lingers in the atmosphere, sort of an unspoken rule, I guess, sometimes, that just gets under your skin, gets you irritated, and, uh, yeah, makes you a bit fired up. I'm not sure I'm firing you up, but you're looking like the the uh, the anger is starting to rise a little bit. So let's tell us what's on your mind today. So um, because we're talking about the topic supplements, um, we both see our, a lot of people taking um, particularly multivitamin um, supplements um, and they kind of are sort of taking them in a way just in case um, because they think, oh, well, you know, like um, this can just make my diet better um, and if I have a, you know, shitty diet, then then it can make up for it. Um, often they don't have any idea of what's actually in the multivitamin at all um and uh they the other precaution that we need to also consider is um you know there might be some nutrients in um particular supplements where we can actually overdose on it as well um and the other thing as well is often people can be taking a number of supplements mm. And they, so they might be taking a multi supplement, but they're also taking an iron supplement, a calcium supplement, a vitamin D supplement, a magnesium supplement, a B complex supplement. Um, and they've spent all this money and they don't even know if they need it. And then they don't even take it, like they'll take it maybe for a week tops and then they get out of the sink. Um, so I think it's just, uh, Try and think a bit more about do you really need this, whatever supplement it is, and if you need it, how do you actually need to take it and are you actually going to take it to the protocol that you need to um, be following? Mm, mm. One of my favourites is when people take iron and calcium supplements at the same time and they mm. block the absorption of each other. <laughs> yeah. Or I had, I think I said this the other week, I had a participant and they had no idea, but they were taking three different types of magnesium supplements. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yep. All right. Mm. Do you feel a bit better now, Steph? I feel, I feel better as long as people um, listen to that little bit of advice, I'll feel much better. So the next the next client that comes through your practice with three different magnesium supplements, do you think you're uh, sufficiently calm enough now or do you think this has just fired you up so you're really going to 
Yeah. Have a I go. Think, um, no, well, we're definitely going to have a podcast on magnesium supplements because it doesn't matter how many times I think sports dietitians have gotten that message out. Um, I just see so many people, you know, taking it and having no idea what they're taking it for. So, um, yeah, it's a podcast we're looking at now. Yeah, absolutely. So today's episode, um, yeah, let us know who we're who we're chatting to. Yeah, yeah. So episode thirty four A, would I benefit from supplements with Greg Shaw? As we said, he's currently the nutrition lead for Swimming Australia and also the performance manager for the open water swimming component of Swimming Australia. Uh, but Greg's been a sports dietitian for probably uh, about twenty years or so. Uh, he uh, did work at the Australian Institute of Sport for many, many years in Canberra. We were talking about Canberra a little bit earlier um, and since moved back to Brisbane. Um, but he worked there primarily with the, the swimming team for, for many, many years. He, um, as you'll hear in this, he's a former elite swimmer himself. Um, but he has worked in, in other sports as well. He was actually a, a sports dietitian at the Brisbane Lions in the AFL when they won their uh, I'm not sure he was there for the first one, but possibly for the second and third of those three premierships in a row in the early 2000s. Uh, mm-hmm. He's also worked in rugby union with the Australian Wallabies and also with the Queensland Regs at uh, various stages over the last 20 years. Uh, but I guess the reason that we're talking to him is really his expertise around supplements. So uh, he'll talk a little bit about it in this interview. He did some research in supplement use in both elite and um, sub-elite swimmers and maybe some of the differences and, and also the changes in supplement use uh, over time because there was a previous study on that, which he was actually a participant when he was still swimming in the original one and then became a researcher and did the second um, study himself. Uh, but he's also been heavily involved in the uh, AIS sports supplement or used to be the sports supplement program where they actually provided supplements to the athletes who were in Canberra, uh, but now it's more the framework that, that other people can access in terms of information around supplement use. Uh, he also, in 2014, I think you were probably there as well, Steph, I know I was, organised uh, a national sports supplement forum around, I guess, some of the, the ethics and legal issues around supplement use and the appropriate mm-hmm. um, use of supplements. And that was sort of in response to what I guess the media termed the supplement scandal in AFL uh, which was back in about 2012, I think 2013, when it actually emerged. Um, and yeah, I think most people who work in the industry realise that it had nothing to do with supplements, the actual scandal. It was all around pharmaceuticals and not supplements, but <laughs> the media like to call it a supplement scandal. So um, in, in some ways that was really beneficial because it actually highlighted the role of sports dietitians and the regulation of um, a dietary advice and supplement advice given within professional and elite sport, even though what was given actually wasn't technically a supplement. So that was interesting. Mm. Um, but as I said, he now works for Swimming Australia um, and continues to, to work individually with, with athletes there, but also in that performance management role. And he's also put together the supplements module for Sports Dietitians Australia's Sports Nutrition course. That's the course that dietitians do with what I was talking about earlier to become sports dietitians. So um, because I do the coordination for that course, I was sort of working with Greg as he put that module together and really liked how we were sort of his approach or the way he thinks about supplements. And I thought, well, that'd be really useful for listeners to hear, you know, that concept or that question, would I benefit from supplements? How do you actually go about answering that question? It's not going to be a clear yes or a clear no, because obviously it's going to be different for every person. But I think Mm -hmm. Greg's way of thinking through that question and coming to an answer is going to be really helpful for people. So that's what we're looking forward to in this interview. 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, awesome. Let's uh, get stuck into it. Yep. Let's do it. Greg Shaw, welcome to the Long Munch. Thanks, guys, for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we are too. We're excited. Um, so you are the nutrition lead for, for Swimming Australia and you've had other roles over the, over the years as well as with many other professional and elite level sports. You also have swum at a fairly high level um, yourself. Can you tell us a bit more about, you know, what was your event um, and where uh, the sport took you as an athlete? Uh, yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to swim uh, for my country for about five years. Uh, made probably, I think, three or four national teams to international meets. My event was 200 Butterfly, the easy one. Um, and uh, <laughs> in Sydney, Australia was obviously a real powerhouse in swimming then. And we had you know, a really fast 200 Fly. At that stage, was the fastest 200 Fly in history as a, as a whole race. Wow. Um, and, and we had, you know, five of our guys go under the Olympic A qualifying time. I was one of them. Um, and, but unfortunately, only, only two get to go. So, yeah, they, they went and, and, and fantastically, um, Justin Norris, one of the guys I used to race, he went on to win an Olympic bronze medal in that race. So wow. I think, uh, you know, I'll take a bit of that and, and say that I pushed into yeah. it. So, but no, um, <laughs> Yeah, so I had a, a good uh, life as a swimmer and at the same time studied nutrition. So had the opportunity to be able to kind of study full-time and, and train full-time. So back in the day when probably training was a little bit less intense than uh, it is now and less, uh, you know, kind of involved um, from, from a swimming perspective. So graduated in 2000, just before the Olympics actually, um, and then worked as a dietitian for a couple of years while I was still swimming and then was lucky enough to get an opportunity in a professional sport. And so, you know, kind of opportunity overtook a uh, swimming career and and I gave up swimming and, and became a dietitian. So, yeah, yeah. Did you did you keep the swimming up just at a hobby level or did you just kind of like, no, nah, I can't do that because if I can't swim at that high level, I just can't, can't do it? No, I'm not that... Uh... No, not that type of person. I probably wasn't yeah. that good. Maybe, maybe that's the problem. Um, but uh, no, I still love swimming, and you know, ever, ever get a chance in the ocean. Um, you know, definitely now one of my roles at Swimming Australia. You know, on top of everything else, is I, I'm the performance manager for open water swimming. Uh, so yep. you know, love getting in and swimming with the guys and and swimming the courses and you know, setting the courses and you know just being in water. I've had, you know, periods of on and off full-on training and not full-on training, but, yeah, definitely something that, uh, you know, I think from an athletic mindset perspective, I do enjoy, you know, hard, fast exercise. So, um, you know, try and find that wherever I can, whenever I can. So, yeah, it's not swimming, it's it's riding or running or trail running or mountain biking or doing something else. So it's definitely something to try to keep, keep going. So have you done a um, triathlon there? Yeah, I've done. I've done. Uh, I think I've done fifteen nooses and oh, wow. a couple of Malula bars. Um, run a marathon. Uh, got a, a trail run coming up. You know, in in, in uh, the middle of the year this year that I'll that I'll kind of tick off. But yeah, yep. do do a bit of everything. Awesome, everything. Yeah, that's cool. 
Um, and so going to the um, open water swimming, um, triathletes will be aware of, you know, the swimming distances. But with the open water swim, um, what sort of distances um, does this cover? And then what are the kind of unique fueling challenges for these events? Yeah, so I, th- th- that's a, a good question. Um, you know, everyone's very aware of what the Olympic uh, program looks like in the pool um, and, you know, the, the iconic races that, uh, you know, have, have come to define our country now. And you know, now that we've got the kind of greatest Olympic female athlete of all time in, in our ranks from swimming, you know, people are aware of that. But, you know, open water, we uh, span anywhere from five kilometres uh, all the way up to 25 kilometres. So at our World Championships, we'll have a five-kilometre race, a 10-kilometre race and a 25-kilometre race. Um, and more recently, we've included a mixed relay, which is a, a four-by-1,500-metre um, relay where uh, men and women uh, race each other. But at the Olympics, you know, it's, it's a 10K. There's only one uh, medal on, 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 on the line for open water at the Olympics, and that's a 10-kilometre race. You know, and, uh, you know, in, in Tokyo... We had our first ever uh, Olympic medal in the 10-kilometre race. Karina Lee uh, got a bronze in the, in the female 10-kilometre race. But from a carbohydrate availability perspective, you know, she Karina did a fantastic effort and consumed about 240 grams of carbohydrate, obviously two to one mix and a bunch of other things in there over the space of the two-hour race combined with, a, you know, a carbohydrate load um, over the 36 hours before that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being in a hot environment, mm-hmm. the, the carbohydrate oxidation rates that, are, that happen in that environment are far greater uh, than, you know, when the water's a bit cooler and your body can, can kind of manage that uh, metabolic load easier. Um, so, you know, she was mm-hmm. kind of well-trained to be able to manage that carbohydrate metabolism and also, you know, consume the volume of carbohydrate and, you know, we worked hard on that with, with her dietitian, uh, Steph Cronin, to be able to kind of make sure that, um, you know, she had that well-trained in her and, you know, she was she was really uh, across all that leading into it. Did you say 240 grams of carbohydrate in two hours? Yep, it's 120 grams an hour. Wow. Mm. And so people are probably wondering, particularly the triathletes who generally won't consume any carbohydrate while they're swimming, thinking, how the heck do you get 120 grams an hour of carbs? They can barely do it on the bike. How do you do that in water while you're swimming? Yes. Because I've, I've seen it. It's pretty unique. But um, for those who haven't seen it before, how would you describe it? So we feed basically on long uh, fishing poles. Um, so we use carbon fibre rods. They're called landing poles. So you know, fishermen use them to scoop up fish out of the ocean after they've caught it. They usually have a big net on the end of it, but we have a, a kind of a 3D printed gimbal with a cup in it. We've tried a whole bunch of things. And, you know, back in the early days, we used to use gel flasks. So, you know, soft gel flask with yeah. bite valves on them. So you could consume things pretty quickly. And back then, our course size was about two and a half kilometers long. So you only got a chance to feed about three times. So, you know, athletes used to take gels with them out onto the course. And so um, when we did that, you know, they would consume a gel um, with a bite valve. Uh, So we'd fit the valve so it wouldn't burst prior to them needing it. But as soon as they bit the valve and and sucked on it, all the liquid and came out. But since um, course sizes have gotten smaller, um, the, the frequency of feeding has become more common. So at the Olympics, the course was only 1.6 kilometres uh, long. 
uh, sorry, 1.25 kilometres long, so it was eight laps, I think. Um, and so that meant that there was lots of opportunity to feed. And in those environments, particularly at something like the Olympics, where fluid is also a problem because, uh, you you know, your sweat rate um, loses uh, kind of pace with uh, thermoregulatory abilities because there's no evaporative cooling. Mm-hmm. You know, Karina also took in around about 300 mils per feed there so mm-hmm. you know she's consuming um things like a, a strong sports drink in about a wide mouth bottle uh the bottle's open and, and it's usually a soft plastic rather than a hard plastic so that um mm-hmm. you know it, it 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 is a it is a real squeeze and consume and you know it's a real skill for them to to kind of they sight the the cup they kind of swim up to it swim beside it roll on their back grab the cup and then roll um, on their back and and consume the cup and, and do a couple of backstroke strokes. Uh, consume 300 mils in probably three or four seconds and then roll back over and start swimming again. So, um, you know, th- this is something that they practice in training. They practice, you know, uh, on camps. Um, and it's a skill that, you know, kind of when you see it in action, it, it, it's a real, um, you, you know, see that real optimization of, of ingestion and, and opportunity, you know, come, come to light. Mm. particularly because like it's not just like you're looking out for one pole in the middle of nowhere you're looking for one pole in amongst a group of you know 20 poles or something yeah so at the olympics it's about 25 swimmers per per group and you know there's there's probably a good 15 of those that are competitive and then we get a a bunch of others that probably you know drop off pretty quickly uh but you know something like world championships we're gonna have 100 swimmers in the race you know so you've got 100 feeders on a pontoon that may be 50 meters long so you're all squeezed into a 50 centimetre box and you're all trying to feed over each other. So there's poles going everywhere and there's cups going everywhere. So, you know, the athletes have to know where you are. You know, we wear bright shirts and a whole bunch of things to make us stand out uh, when you're feeding. Um, so, yeah, it's a real spectacle to, to watch feeding and there's definitely plenty of carnage uh, as, you know, cups go flying, people smack cups and, you know, uh, Coaches drop feeds in the water before the athlete gets there. Mm. And so it, it's a real logistical challenge for them. Mm. Yeah. So today we're discussing the topic of dietary supplements for runners, cyclists and triathletes. Um, and Al and I know that this is an area that you're really interested in and you've done um, a fair bit of research in the area. Uh, you've also contributed quite significantly to the AIS sports supplement framework over the years, um, which we'll probably discuss a bit later on. But I guess what sparked your interest in the area in the first place? I think it's, uh, you know, for me, it's been a really kind of um, enlightening journey from a supplement perspective, you know, all the way back from when I was an athlete and, you know, um, I had the strength conditioning coach saying, okay, well, we need to get you on creatine, you know, and that's the uh, so that would have been about 1996, uh, 97, you know, and the story of, uh, you know, Linford Christie and, and the British psych, uh, British running team, you know, Barcelona Olympics and study hadn't come out yet. They were using it. And, it, you know, it really the athlete mindset is about, you know, what do I need to do to be better? Um, and, and, you know, definitely supplements are a concept that is easy to align with performance. Um, and particularly the way we talk about it and the way we've talked about it over time um, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about this a little bit later but you know we use terms like ergogenic in regards to its performance enhancing rather than you know performance optimizing um, which you know which I think there's probably a difference about but 
you know, and, and that idea of ergogenic, if, if, if you're telling me that you're classifying supplements based on how much they improve performance, well, then they must improve performance. So therefore, I'm going to take them because mm. that's what I'm all about, improving performance. So, yeah. you know, I think um, my interest was sparked early in the, you know, as an athlete and, you know, being exposed to people like Louise Burke. She was, um, you know, the dietitian who used to work with the Australian swim team and, you know, to see her, you know, talk and, and engage with um, these types of concepts was really interesting. And, you know, one of the the things that, um, you know, really sparked my interest was, was a supplement survey that was undertaken uh, in 1998 by the AIS. And it was in to the use of dietary supplements and what athletes, swimmers particularly used. And, and I was a, a kind of a, a willing participant in that, being a nutrition student. Um, and I think, you know, that was the first kind of opportunity to try and understand why people took things. And, you know, it, it's mm. formed the foundation of the AIS supplement program, which ran for a long period of time before the framework. And subsequently, you know, I, I was lucky enough to go back and replicate that study in 2009 and look at the changes in swimming, swimmers' supplement practices and behaviours uh, associated with, you know, programs like the AIS supplement program and, and other regulatory and in uh, industry changes that happened over the 11 years between the two studies. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, that idea of, um, you know, ingesting a, a substance that, you know, might have some, you know, performance-enhancing properties, magical or logical, um, is one that, you know, all athletes resonate with and, and one that we often, you know, struggle to overcome, particularly when, marketing and sales pitches can 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 um, leverage that and really sell something um, that may not actually be as useful as what people think in in, in certain populations yeah yeah um, and so before we get into our question which is would I benefit from supplements I guess we first need to define what actually we mean by the term supplements so some products are pretty easy to understand like an iron tablet. Um, but for some products, people might differ in whether they think it's actually a supplement or, or not. So like your sports drinks, gels, protein powders, protein fortified muesli bars. Um, so what actually is um, what we define as a supplement and maybe the different categories of supplements? This is where you're going you're gonna to catch me out here, Steph, because uh, I'm... I, I can access. I know I can access the detail if I need to by looking at my files, but to yep. pull that definition off the top yep. of my head is going to be a difficult one. <laughs> I, I will say though, um, I think you know, it, for me, it, it's any any nutrient found in food um, or, or, or naturally occurring in botanical or animal products that can be refined and consumed to help support you know the optimization of of, of cellular. Um, nutrient availability or say nutrient availability yeah. you know the ISC have a really good definition in, in their, their, their their recent uh, you know supplementation paper and, and you know they've got the the kind of language in there that is food or non-food chemical and I, I probably disagree with that a little bit I think you know saying a non-food chemical you open yourself up to pharmaceutical uh, agents and, yeah. and and I disagree with the idea that a chemical could be pharmaceutically manufactured without any availability in our current dietary intake, however small, and we call it a supplement. Um, I can't think of anything that would fit that 
you know, kind of definition that isn't a pharmaceutical that we would classify as a pharmaceutical and definitely in Australia that we would classify as a pharmaceutical. And so, and this is where we would get into, you know, kind of philosophical debates around, you know, what is a supplement versus medication and things like, you know, some of the the cannabidiols and new novel uh, Mm. botanical uh, chemicals that are being sold as supplements in some parts of the world that are here in Australia are regulated as medications. And then um, I think, you know, you, you've touched on a really you know, interesting point there around, you know, what's the boundaries between fortified foods and then dietary supplements. Uh, and I think that's one that, you know, over time and going forward that those lines will blur more, more significantly mm-hmm. as, as the food supply uh, becomes more sophisticated um, and our ability to identify the need for fortification from a supplementation perspective is, you know, going to lead to foods that have more and more fortification in them um, because the breadth of dietary intake and the volume of dietary intake that is required to meet some of our optimal nutrient intakes at the moment is probably far in excess of our caloric, you know, requirement. Mm. And therefore, you know, people will be challenged to be able to optimise nutrient intake particularly micronutrient intake, while still maintaining uh, sufficient energy balance. Do you think that's a problem, Greg, that those lines are getting blurred over time? Like obviously as humans, we like to put things into neat little boxes and say it's in this box or this one or this one. But as those lines get blurry and that becomes a bit trickier to do, do you see any downside to that or not really? It's just it is what it is. I I think the the people who it becomes harder for is the athletes for me, um, particularly in this this day and age where, you know, rightfully so, you know, athletes are well educated on the risks of contamination in dietary supplements. And and that's been something that for a long history has, you know, had um, risk for athletes. And, you know, I remember, you know, back in in the mid-90s writing a letter to Musashi to say, can you please provide me some evidence that there's nothing in your band, in your products that would contain banned substances, um, you know, or, or would provide risk to me so that I had that on hand so that, that I, you know, if anything happened, I could you could use that as evidence to suggest that I'd done everything I could to try and minimise uh, the risk of, of contamination. Look back on it now and go, that's a pretty foolish exercise, but, you know, that, that was what we did back then. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, as I said, like I think um, yeah, that's where it becomes confusing, you know, around where should I be... Uh, putting in place my risk management strategies versus where can I, you know, not mm-hmm. fear a- and restrict my intake because yeah. I am worried about contamination, um, and that was that was really why we went down the mm-hmm. the uh, route of looking at protein fortified foods and you know what's the real risk of something like that you know when the only added ingredient is a is a food grade protein, so yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I think Steph and I have talked about doing a separate episode all about sort of that contamination risk and how much of a risk that is to, to athletes. Yeah, cool. Um, so in terms of um, supplement use, do we know how common it is for athletes compared to the, the general pop? Yeah, there's there's definitely limited data in this space and it, it's a really rich field for someone who you know wanted to get into research uh, from a dietetics perspective and you know, um, I think it's a it's relatively low hanging fruit from that perspective. But you know, we've got good data from our national nutrition surveys and and and, and NHANES data, which suggests that you know, the general population around fifty percent are using some form of dietary supplement mm-hmm. in some form. 
that increases as we get older. Typically, females use more dietary supplements than males, surprisingly. And, you know, what people define as dietary supplements, you know, is really interesting. You know, there's a couple of surveys that look at the supplement use of gym goers. Um, and in there is PEDS, you know, performance enhancing substances. And, and people openly admit to using them thinking that it's a supplement and it's perfectly okay. Um, so, you know, uh, the general population that are going to the gym and being active are using dietary supplements. And I think, you know, the ageing population, you know, dietary supplements should be a really common practice because, you know, food uh, breadth and volume decreases over time, yet our nutrient requirements don't. Um, and so, you know, fortification or, or supplementation of the habitual diet with specific nutrients is a really good way of being able to maintain nutrient availability as people age. Uh, you know, and we see evidence in that for things like protein. Um, you know, now we're starting to see that in creatine and other kind of uh, micronutrients that you know demonstrate that elderly uh, populations, you know, do require some support to maintain a healthy dietary intake of the vast array of of, of kind of um, nutrients that benefit them from a healthy and healthy lifestyle perspective yeah yeah and um why do you think that athletes are attracted to supplements are there common beliefs that athletes share about supplements so you know i know we talked about the enhancing effect does that seem to be the most common reason well as i said i think it comes back to the athletic mindset that you know i'm, I'm in this to be better um, and, and I'm training hard to be better and I've got to put a lot of effort into it. Um, whereas, you know, I can take something, um, you know, as simple as caffeine and get a, a real, you know, kind of meaningful boost in my performance. Um, so, you know, the, the psychology of why athletes take supplementation is a really fascinating uh, kind of um, idea. And, you know, we've definitely really seen a change in that over time due to education and, uh, campaigns by various um, sporting and government health institutions where, you know, if I was to run the survey again, you know, now effectively another 10 years on from the, the last one when we ran, I'd say that we have seen a reduction in supplement use by athletes, uh, more so, not so much in the in the prevalence, but more so the number of supplements athletes use. So in the study that we did in 2009 comparing to the 1998 cohort, we saw an increase. We didn't see a change in prevalence. It was still around 100%, 97%, I think it was. Uh, but we saw a real increase in the number of dietary supplements athletes used over a preparation. You know, I think it jumped from about 5.3 up to about 9.7, um, you know, different supplements that athletes were using. And I think that's probably come back again due to, due to a couple of reasons, you know, athletes being more mindful of evidence-based products um, and having access to sports dietitians and, and people with knowledge around why something might be beneficial to them, not just it's, it's classified as ergogenic, so therefore it's going to be beneficial to everyone. So we're seeing some of that kind of, um, you know, um, change in behaviour associated with knowledge development. Um, and we're also seeing some change in behaviour associated with risk management. You know, we're definitely seeing athletes actively making decisions not to take supplements because, you know, the message around them being risky has been so successful um, that they're second-guessing um, you know, the, the risk um, and probably overestimating the risk at times uh, and making a decision that could actually be quite beneficial for them 
to try and mitigate the, the risk of a doping uh, violation. Mm. Do you think there's been an element in the past, whether it's the same now, whether it's reduced a little bit with education as well, that kind of FOMO element of like, I have to take it because everyone else is, and if I don't, I'm going to be at a disadvantage kind of thing? I definitely think, and this isn't any disrespect to anyone, in less educated populations that that is an issue uh, where people get their information from their peers, uh, that being you know, whether it be social media or um, other athletes, then peer-driven behaviour um, and, and nutrition supplementation is far more prevalent than in the elite athletic populations where you know, the people who are influencing their decisions are a lot less. Yep. The one thing we definitely saw in our supplement study and one of the things that we did was looked at how the regulatory framework of the AIS supplement program influenced behaviour. And the one thing the AIS supplement program did back in the day was it provided free access, so athletes got the supplements for free, uh, to low-risk evidence-based products at the times where they were most effective and in protocols that made made a difference. And so in that instance, we had athletes using more supplements and, you know, more evidence-based processes, whereas in the same cohort of swimmers who weren't uh, regulated by that framework or that uh, program, you know, they, they definitely had higher use of supplements with less evidence, um, and they actually used less as well because they had to pay for it and they had to source it. Yeah. So... You know, those yep. barriers definitely influence behaviour and, you know, we definitely see that in today's commercial environment mm. where, you know, you can work in a chemist warehouse and buy, you know, you rarely pay full price for supplements. Things are always mm. on sale. They're never full price because it's such a competitive market now, the dietary supplement industry, um, that, you know, particularly just general multivitamins and multiminerals, um, you know, they're cheap and available and so therefore, you know, people will use them and, you know, they may not use them effectively. And we also know from research that most people don't follow long-term the uh, dosing protocols that, you know, are effective. And so therefore, you know, it, it does become expensive urine, as is the common um, referral, you know, in, in the scientific community. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess it'd be almost impossible to answer the question, you know, would I benefit from supplements um, because it depends on the supplement, it depends on the person and their situation. So you really can't give a one-size-fits answer to that. But I think what we're interested in here is not so much the answer to that question because, as I said, it's different for everyone, but it's more, I guess, the process that you would go through and the, the way of thinking about how you might answer that question for any particular individual. So to start off on that point, I guess the way you would answer that question would, as I said, vary based on the type of athlete and the event, the competitive level, um, the type of supplement, whether it's, you know, vitamin D because of a deficiency as opposed to a, you know, an ergogenic supplement, you know, one taken for performance benefits like caffeine or beetroot juice. But I guess thinking like when you're working with, with the athletes that you do and you get a question like that, what's your sort of thinking process about, you know, what's the right answer for that person? I think uh, you know you, you've made a couple of good points there that I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about, and I think it comes back to you know what my process is. I think most recreational athletes these days that are competing and training amongst other busy activities, you know, there is going to be a dietary supplement that will benefit them in some way. I'm yet to see 
individual, and this is no disrespect to any, because I think it's absolutely really hard to do this, but that has the perfect dietary intake that meets and optimizes all their nutrients through food. Mm. Um, I think it's, you know, even people, you know, who, who eat lots of vegetables, usually, mm. you know, due to the volume of vegetables they're eating, they're possibly not eating enough meat to be able to kind of get in dietary amounts of creatine to optimize creatine stores. So therefore they're going to have suboptimal creatine stores. Um, and if they're eating a lot of meat to meet the creatine stores, they're probably not eating a lot of vegetables. And so therefore they're going to be missing a whole bunch of things. So, you know, if we, if we kind of look at it, that lens, it comes back to not whether dietary supplementation will be beneficial, but what dietary supplement is beneficial for you. Um, and I think that's the, the kind of um, the mindset that if an athlete's coming to me now, I'm starting to go, well, okay, at this point in your training, um, looking at your dietary uh, intake, looking at your food environment, you know, in regards to what's the availability, what's the budget, what's the convenience aspects of that, what's going to have the biggest bang for your buck. Um, you know, and most of the athletes that we deal with and I deal with, you know, um, they are time poor, budget poor, um, and they are really looking for meal replacement kind of supplementation and you know as as low tech and and as basic as it sounds you know sustage and sport is one of my kind of foundational dietary supplements because it's effectively a multivitamin in a, in a dose um, I can add a bit of additional protein to it and you know I get a, a really large calorie uh, calorie density to it um, and, and I can meet a lot of uh, things in, in, in one supplement. So um, I think, you know, coming back to that point that, you know, I think it's not so much around is supplementation beneficial to you. I think, you know, most people would benefit from some form of supplement. It's just what's the most beneficial for you and what's going to be a waste of time for you. You know, Al, you mentioned there, uh, you know, beetroot juice and nitrates. I think, you know, that's one of the fascinating ones that, you know, really kind of gets to the heart of this idea of ergogenics versus optimization. You know, we started off with this idea that, you know, uh, the oral intake of, of nitrates, um, pharmaceutical nitrates to start with, um, and then dietary nitrates through beetroot juice and Andy Jones's work, you know, had some magical ergogenic effect. But the more we've researched and the more we've looked at it, you know, we've come to realise that there's potentially nitrate deposits, you know, throughout the body, in skeletal muscle, you know, that can be accessible and optimised through dietary intake. So it then transfers that from an ergogenic, uh, you know, um, model similar to caffeine, which I think is probably more of a stimulant rather than a supplement, changes it back to something more putting uh, nitrates into the form of something like a creatine or a beta-alanine, where, you know, the dietary intake of these things have are suboptimal because people just aren't eating enough vegetables in the volume that you can but when you do eat enough vegetables, you know, that are high in nitrate uh, over long enough periods, you get an increase in the di in, in the body's stores of nitrates, which, you know, may be one of the reasons why our elite athlete populations who do have more vegetables in their diet just due to the sheer volume of food that they eat have higher nitrate stores and therefore don't benefit from dietary supplementation or acute dietary supplementation of nitrates in the same way as, you know, um, non-elite or kind of um, athletes who have lower dietary intakes of nitrates do. So I think that idea of, you know, moving away from the deficiency to optimization model means that most people are going to benefit from some form of supplement. 
Um, and the only one that I can think of that is ergogenic because it is a stimulant that fits that kind of traditional, uh, I take it and I get better, is caffeine. Um, and that's the only one that I can think of, you know, and that doesn't fit within the stimulant mindset that, you know, influences the central nervous system, not the peripheral um, physiology in some way, you know, that, you know, that fits within that model. Now, you, you could start adding a whole bunch of ones there like, a, you know, a theocrine or, you know, a theanine or any of those types of ones that may act more centrally. But, you know, the ones that are acting in, in the peripheral system to optimise availability of a metabolite, a, a nutrient or, a, or optimise a pathway, you know, I think there is good evidence that the body has the capability of optimising the storage of those things and therefore looking at, you know, the dietary intake um, to see whether there's enough in the diet to, to meet that requirement or whether supplementation may benefit. Um, mm. And that's where we get the performance gains um, that come from that optimization and the body's just functioning properly or, or at its optimal kind of state to be able to kind of do the athletic perspective as possible. And, mm. and taking that to a different level, you know, I think that's the same, you know, some of the stuff we've looked at from a protein or amino acid availability perspective. You know, we do an exercise session, the body sends out a signal to remodel. Um, that signal is of, of, of specific strength, depending on what you've done. Um, and then it comes down to availability of the building blocks to be able to meet that signal um, to whether we, we get good remodeling or bad remodeling or sufficient remodeling. So, you know, it then builds into the energy availability and energy nutrient availability kind of concept as well. Mm. Yep. And so picking up that, that sort of deficiency versus optimization concept, because I think that's, you know, really a useful way to look at it. So I guess that the traditional approach, and if we look at sort of, uh, you know, for things like vitamins and minerals, you've got your recommended dietary intakes, whether it's, you know, vitamin C or protein or um, magnesium or whatever it is, sort of says, we need to get this much so we don't become deficient in something, because if we become deficient in something, we'll have some sort of poor health. And that's kind of the model that that's based on. Whereas what you're saying here with the optimization is to say, well, rather than just presenting preventing us being in poor health, we actually want to optimize and, you know, can we get even better? So rather than just preventing deficiency, can we actually optimize our health and or performance even further? Is there another level that we could or need to go to to be able to do that? Is that essentially a summary of that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, yeah, that's definitely my mindset, you know, based on my experience of the evidence. And, you know, obviously, you know, others will have different thinkings in, in that area. But, you know, I, I can fit into that model pretty much any nutrient, um, you know, whether it be carbohydrate, whether it be fat, whether it be you know, different types of fat, you know, to, to optimise the storage in different environments, whether it be omega-3 versus omega-6 or whatever. Um you know, it, all the way down to, to micronutrients such as vitamin C. I think, you know, we know the consequences of vitamin C from a connective tissues perspective is is scurvy, uh, and we know that most people these days, you know, due to the food supply, aren't deficient in it. But we also know that, you know, we can saturate the system with higher intakes, um, and you know, that isn't necessarily, you know, the high um, kind of intakes that you know, a thousand to two thousand milligrams of vitamin C you know, from a tablet may require, but, you know, may be saturatable by you know, having two, you know, kiwi fruits a day, um, which is 400 milligrams of vitamin C. So, 
I think, um, you know, those types of concepts, you know, um, resonate in most biological systems that I'm aware of. Uh, And there'll always be a a case where someone will say, oh, not this one, which, which, which is fair. But I think for me, you know, from the dietary supplements that I work with and, and I kind of try to integrate into athletes' diets, they really are there to supplement the, the, the variability of the athlete's dietary intake to, to optimise it so that storage is um, suitable for the level of athletic performance that they're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting discussion around sort of optimization versus deficiency. And if we think about some of those traditional I guess what we traditionally think of as those ergogenic or performance supplements, like things like creatine, beta alanine and so forth. I guess what you're saying there, Greg, is they're things that we would normally get from the diet. It just might be that certain individuals, which might be in a lot of cases, a large majority of people, in some cases, only a small number of people are just not getting enough of that to, for performance to be optimized through that, whatever pathway it is that those nutrients are associated with. So it's not necessarily that you, take the supplement to enhance performance you're just essentially topping up because you're not getting enough from a dietary point of view yeah i think i think that's right i think uh you know when we think about what is required from a performance perspective you know particularly athletically you know to be suboptimal in something you're not going to be able to be the best in the world um let's let's put it at that or you know Mm. um so you know, identifying what nutrients might be possible to optimise and, and those that are really necessary in, you know, the athletic pursuit you're looking for, um, you know, is a way of um, identifying and has been the foundation of supplement research in, in some ways, uh, you know, uh, over time. You know, the reason people started looking at carbohydrate supplementation was because, you know, they realised it was a rate-limiting step in performance. The, the availability mm. of substrate coming into the system meant that, uh, you know, at some point you, you were going to have to drop back to fat and, you know, that was the, the kind of limit to performance. And so, you know, how do we increase that? You know, what, what do we look at? How do we keep that going? And that's been, you know, if you look at all the different ones, um, you know, creatine and, and beta-alanine, you know, there's definitely dietary sources of those things that, you know, when, you know, um, provided a food technology lens you know people have been able to way of refining the food source into something that is you know simpler to consume and showing that you can actually um you know supplement um through food sources you know in this way i think um you know roger harris's you know classic studies in in, in creatine you know with a 400 gram steak compared to a two two gram you know dose of, of creatine monohydrate showing that although the um the spike in creatine availability, you know, through the through the pharmaceutical uh, supplement was far greater. The area under the curve was the same, you know, because obviously, you know, you've got to go through some digestion and release of the, the creatine from within the, the cells of, of the steak for it to be available for for um, you know, in, in the plasma. Um, so you know, it, it's going to take a little bit lot longer uh, for that to happen. So. You know, and the same with something like a beta alanine, and and you know the the study that Roger did with the, the chicken broth, where they took a you know whole carcass of chicken and boiled it down and refined it, and you know got all the, the beta alanine out of it that way, and then supplemented with um, a chicken broth versus a you know a, a, a beta alanine powder, and showed that 
you know, the, the availability of the beta alanine was, this, was, was, again, not as quick and as fast, but potentially better because you didn't get the side effects associated with the rapid increase in, in plasma availability of beta alanine that, you know, is parenthesis. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, there's a range of those products and foods and, and food sources that, you know, can, you can do it, but it just becomes really hard. Mm. You know, it's just it's 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 hard to eat 400 grams of steak a day, and it's hard to eat. You know, what would effectively be, you know, I think it's 600 grams of of uh, turkey breast to be able to get a, a loading dose of beta alanine. You know, you're now eating a kilo of of animal meat. Um, you know, and that's gonna that's gonna you know um, displace other nutrients in the diet. You know, because you just don't have any space mm. left. You know, and you're in a coma somewhere in the meat sweats because you've eaten a kilo <laughs> of, uh, you know, animal carcass. Um, but but I think that that concept, and you know, again, I think it's starting to play out for things like nitrates and and other nutrients that are previously termed performance enhancing or ergogenic, and you know, that performance enhancement comes from optimization of the stores. Yep. Yeah. And so I guess, again, thinking of that optimization versus deficiency, like obviously if we're looking at, you know, if someone's iron deficient or vitamin D deficient or B12 deficient or whatever, like you can go out and get a blood test and, you know, as long as someone knows how to interpret the results of that, you can get a fairly good idea if someone's deficient or not and then you know, supplement as appropriate. But how would someone go about trying to figure out whether they're optimizing as opposed to not being deficient? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, oh, I think that's where, you know, you need to use expert support um, or educate yourself on, you know, what the requirements of your athletic pursuit are and where you're going to see the biggest bang for your buck. You know, let, let's take, um, you know, marathon running or, or Ironman triathlon, for example, you know, which, which maybe some of your listeners, you know, partake in. The protocol, the duration, the amount that would be required to optimise beta alanine for that population that may have a small benefit from a training perspective in a repeat effort uh, high intensity hit type training work you know is going to be far smaller from a performance enhancing perspective compared to a carbohydrate caffeine supplement to take during the race and during training um, that's going to have a far bigger bang for your buck uh, in endurance sport um, and so again you know looking at that and going i will find a, a carbohydrate gel that has caffeine in it and, and i'll use that in the race um, versus, you know, am I am I optimising um, beta alanine uh, storage? Uh, versus, you know, I- I even things like, you know, am, am I getting enough omega threes in, in my dietary intake? And, you know, am I eating fatty fish often enough? You know, maybe three times a week or two times a week, which you know, dietary um, guidelines tell us is is beneficial to health. You know, or, or do I need to get that from another source? to be able to kind of optimise cellular storage, uh, sorry, and, and transport function, you know, through, you know, changing the cell membrane concentrations of, of omega-3 versus omega-6 fatty acids. So I think I think it comes down to, you know, being educated. Um, and if that's not available to you through, um, you know, research of, of, of your own, I think that's where a sports dietitian or, or, or a sports physician that can come in to help you kind of identify where those opportunities might be in, in your diet to to optimise and enhance performance from a supplementation perspective. Yep, yep. And I guess, you know, some of our listeners will be sort of recreational athletes. They're just training and doing races for the enjoyment or, you know, raising money for charity, something like that. Others want to get the best out of themselves. Um, others are trying to win events, be it for pride or prize money depending on what whatever level that they at um does your thinking around i guess 
that optimization and and you know whether it's worth it, so to speak, from a supplement point of view. How do you feel that changes, I guess, across the different levels of competitiveness that athletes would have? Uh, do you still see a benefit for optimizing for those people who are just keen to go out there and, and finish and enjoy themselves, even if it's maybe optimizing how they feel at work outside of you know training and racing as well? Yeah, I think it comes back to the is it worth it? Um, you know, from a you know that can have a, a range of different meanings in regards to is it worth it from a financial cost perspective? You know, is it worth from a, a burden perspective? You know, uh, you look at something like beta alanine and you think the protocols that have been shown to be effective for that is, you know, four doses of, you know, 1.2 grams a day for 10, potentially 20 weeks. Um, mm. You know, and, that, and that's a really high burden on someone to be able to follow that, you know, religiously to be able to kind of benefit from that. Um, so, you know, when I say, is it worth it? It's not just about, you know, is it going to enhance performance? It's kind of that holistic environment of, you know, um, budget, effort, time, um, health. You know, yeah, there's also that that concept that um, particularly some botanical uh, supplements can have really um, devastating effect on th- on organs like the liver, where you know the it's easy to overdose uh, or, or take toxic doses in and and i think that's the other side of things to keep in mind is you know we're, we're talking about a hermetic curve concept here where not enough is detrimental there's a real sweet spot but also too much is detrimental so you know again i, I can't think of anything that you know doesn't have um those consequences in, in regards to being sitting on that hermetic curve um and so water yeah, that's right. You know, carbohydrate, you know, um, fat, you know, protein, you know, there's a whole range of things that, you know, where that where that point is from a detrimental perspective may be uh, difficult to achieve through, dirt, through certain foods, you know, for something like protein or or even something like caffeine from coffee, you know, the, the kind of vehicle in which it's delivered can influence its, you know, how, how easy or hard it is to, to kind of overdose on it. But um the the year that worth it is is more of a is is more of a philosophical conversation that you need to have uh, with yourself and as you've pointed out you know comfort can be can be a really nice is it worth it you know the fact that I'm doing this a little bit easier than what I would have to if if I didn't take this and and, and you know that that comes back to things like carbohydrate supplementation in in endurance exercise you know yeah you probably don't need it and you can grind away in, in fat metabolism and you know finish a race without having too much consequences but you're probably not going to it's, it's going to be a tougher race and you know you're potentially not going to get the benefit of um some of the the the, the central benefits of carbohydrate you know that, that actually are reward are based um and so yeah it, you know you can definitely wear that as a badge but you know i think there's there's value in you know looking at those types of supplementation to, to, to make the event more enjoyable. Um, and I think that also, you know, what becomes a food, what becomes a supplement, you know, blurs as well when we come into some of those endurance events and, you know, you can use food supplementally, you know, from a psychological benefit perspective or, a, you know, a physiological benefit perspective to, to deliver a nutrient in a form that is psychologically beneficial as well. Um, so, you know, you, both you guys have, have, have kind of, you know, seen that in, in practice in, in ultra-endurance events where, you know, a, a packet of chips can be a supplemental form 
of food because you, you, you're adding high sodium and you know, carbohydrate and, and in an energy dense supplement, you know, which is palatable and enjoyable from a form perspective. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, what, what's a supplement can be, can be, and, and is it worth it? Can be a really blurry question. Yep. Yeah, I was actually doing a, a race nutrition plan yesterday for a 200 mile race, 200 miler. So, uh, very much that that psychological element is a huge one there. Um, I know someone is is well. I'm I'm sure a large number of listeners out there are probably going, "Hang on, when are they going to ask the question? Should I be taking my multivitamin or not?" Um, rather than just to ask that question, because you know we, we sort of talked about you know, the, the thought process behind that already. But I guess more that broader question of, you know, and again, it probably comes back to, is it worth it? But what's your thoughts around, you know, taking supplements kind of just in case, like, I don't think I have an issue here. I think my diet is okay, but I'm going to take this multivitamin just in case I don't, or because I know my diet isn't as good as it could be kind of thing. Um, yeah, how how do you sort of go through that thought process, maybe with the athletes that you work with? I probably look at it from a consequence perspective. Um, so um, both sides, you know, if if I I take this just in case, what what are the consequences? Um, and I, I'm big on that, both you know, from a athletic performance perspective, but also from a nutrition perspective in regards to, you know, we know people who maybe take a multivitamin just in case, um, you know, can wear that as a bit of a health shield mm-hmm. and so may make poorer decisions in other areas of their lives with the, under the premise that they think they're doing everything right by taking a multivitamin. Um, and, you know, I think that's where some of the studies uh, in population-based supplementation looking at people who take multivitamins for long periods of time have demonstrated that there is no benefit from it because it is outweighed by the fact that they make poorer health decisions in other areas. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you're going into it with good intention um, and you're using it, you know, at, at a, you know, in a way that um, is there to support, you know, a poor dietary intake or a suboptimal dietary intake, you know, there's, there's no harm in that and so therefore you know um that would be where i'd I'd kind of talk through well what other decisions are you making you know in life that may be unhealthy or or not optimized for performance that then you know you're offsetting with the the fact that you're taking a multivitamin and you definitely see this in athletes you know often in regards to well i'm having my protein shake after from a recovery perspective so i'm doing everything i need there but then you know on a saturday night may go out and you know stand on their feet for four hours, you know, out drinking and partying. So even if they're not drinking, they're out standing, you know, up for four hours. You know, that's a a load in itself. But, you know, as long as I'm taking my protein supplement after exercise, I'm doing everything I can from a recovery perspective. Um, So, you know, whereas it's it's just, it's just, you know, it's not as effective as, you know, getting a good night's sleep and, you know, you know, making sure you're not, you know, kind of on your feet for too too long a length of time, all, all those types of things. Mm, yeah, and I don't know about both of you guys, but I tend to observe that the people who do take multivitamins are probably the people who are least likely to need or benefit from them, and the people that might benefit from multivitamins are the ones least likely to take them. Yeah, that's right, and I think that that's that's why we see you know research that suggests that you know later you know when we look at it back on it later in life, it doesn't actually reduce risk of disease or you know other other consequences of poor health and in fact may actually you know contribute to that because of that you know reason that 
you know, you're not you're not paying attention to the areas that are going to make the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. That false sense of security. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, just to to wrap up, I guess from an endurance performance point of view, when we talked about sort of carbohydrate, obviously on the podcast, we've talked about other things before in terms of you know fluid, obviously, and hydration. Um, we've talked about, I guess, preventing deficiencies in things like iron. But are there any other? Um, I mean, obviously, caffeine we've talked about as well. Besides that, what are the other things that you would think for the majority of people in sort of running, cycling, triathlon, those sort of endurance and ultra endurance sports, are the things that you're thinking about? These are the priorities in terms of optimization. Those supplements that are that are optimizing, you know, cellular um, in environments with with um, the right amount of nutrients or, or, or substrate or, or metabolites, um, you know, they're going to be beneficial across the whole athletic spectrum. And and I know. You know, there's a, there's a lot of evidence suggests that something to say like a creatine is not going to benefit you know endurance performance, but you know if we broaden our scope of what is enhanced performance to you know just being able to do a bit more work, you know being able to you know um, offset you know a lower carbohydrate diet, you know from a glycogen resynthesis perspective, you know um, making sure that the cells are sufficiently you know hydrated and and kind of um, um, yeah, the metabolism's not not working overtime, you know, at different at different stages. I think, you know, uh, creatine is probably an underestimated uh, kind of a supplement across the the entire human lifespan. You know, I definitely think as adults get older, we should be looking at our clinical populations. You know, utilizing creatine, and there's a bunch of, you know, there's a whole area of creatine that's involved out of sport into clinical populations and how. You know, whether it be in the brain, you know, in a range of different tissues, you know, in diabetes research, you know, that, that enhancing and optimising that creatine storage really helps the body function properly. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's one that gets underestimated a bit. I think, um, you know, it, it's been difficult to demonstrate, um, but there's pockets of evidence to suggest that maybe omega-3s are, are beneficial, you know, from a metabolic perspective, Um and a range of other areas, you know, from an inflammatory perspective, you know, and that's something people should 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 kind of look at or, or kind of question whether, you know, they're, they're doing a good enough job in that area. I do think, you know, the nitrate ones is is a fascinating and a really cool story in regards to, the mum always said, eat your green leafy vegetables and, you know, lo and behold, yeah, there's a reason for that, even if we didn't know it, you know, a long time ago. Um, and, you know, it's not difficult from a dietary perspective to add in, you know, 100 grams of leafy greens, you know, you know, every couple of days to be able to kind of optimise that, you know, with, along with other high nitrate vegetables to be able to optimise those stores. I think also it's really easy to neglect the old boring supplements for new, novel, cool stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it's a polarising argument in, in the um, in the endurance uh, athletic community, but I, I think carbohydrate is you know, one that, um, you know, it's so simple, it's so accessible and it's so easy um, to, to achieve that, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me why you wouldn't try and optimise the availability of that to your race plan. Now, that doesn't mean you need to do what Karina did and, and consume 240 grams of carbohydrate over a two-hour race. That's, you know, that, that's, that's world-class. That's elite metabolism kind of working at its best. Yep. Um, but, you know, 30 grams... Uh, over the course of an hour, you know, is, is pretty achievable and, and will make a difference. So, 
you know, those those types of things I think is also beneficial. And that, and that comes back to, you know, in this day and age where, um, you know, we're, we're becoming more aware of, you know, what the consequences of a mismatch intake, particularly from a macronutrient perspective is, you know, when we're talking about things like energy availability and, you know, the, 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 the negative health consequences of associate, associated with things like red S, you know, it really kind of solidifies the need to pay attention to that optimization of availability um, in, in areas like, you know, um, amino acid availability and protein intake and looking at, yeah, some of the, some of the, the amino acids that may have been neglected over time um, that may actually be beneficial for things for like connective tissue health. Um, you know, and I think, uh, again, that fits in that same model. The timing, the requirement um, are different to what is myofibril protein synthesis and, you know, looking at that and looking to try and optimise the availability of those nutrients at the time when the body's trying to incorporate them into tissue is, is an area that, you know, can really pay dividend for people. Yep. Yeah. And we had an episode with um, Professor Dan Moore all about ah, good. protein for endurance athletes Yeah, yep. um, last year. So if anyone's interested, listeners, you can go back and, and have a listen to that one. So just to, to wrap this up, um, if people are keen to, as you said, you know, do a bit more research, find out about a particular supplement uh, and whether or not it's likely to sort of help optimize their intake or be beneficial to them, where can they go for good information? Look, I think in Australia, you know, we're really privileged um, to have that the general public can take advantage of, of the work of the AIS and, and people like Professor Louise Burke and Gary Slater and, uh, you know, um, the, the researchers that, you know, have, have gone through the Australian Institute of Sport um, and the AIS Sports Supplement Framework is a good starting point uh, from an Australian perspective. Uh, as we branch out more internationally and we become more sophisticated with that, I think, uh, you know, examine.com is a great source of, of, of freely available uh, evidence-based information. Um, and again, it's a good starting point from an education perspective. And then there's a range of other resources out, you know, things like PubMed and, you know, um, you know Google Scholar that you can then start to you know, type in the right question and, and get, a, get a bit of a spattering of what's out there and available at the moment. You know, podcasts, there's a, there's a range of, you know, podcasts, um, and, and there's probably too many to name where, you know, the experts get on and, and give their opinion on stuff and, you know, that that's a, a medium that, that's kind of becoming more freely available and you, you guys are doing a great job in this area kind of getting the information out to the people. And so, you know, I would encourage people to kind of listen broadly, I suppose, you know, is, is a good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, any other advice or, or tips that might help listeners make decisions about whether a supplement is worth their time or money that we haven't already discussed or do you think we've pretty much covered everything look i think we've covered everything that that i use in, in my toolbox um and you know as i said i think uh you know being curious and asking good questions is, is a good starting point and not just taking someone's opinion as fact you know it worked for me and i'm now doing this because i've taken this you know, be, be a bit more curious than that and be and you know seek out better information and 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 you know broaden your understanding of why that might be beneficial for you not just because someone else told you because uh you know that's where we've seen definitely in the literature and, and in the lay press you know people getting into trouble uh from a you know, toxicity perspective or also in a health perspective because it hasn't been enough questions haven't been asked yep cool 
to Steph now for our bonus round. Awesome, awesome. All right, this is where we get to know a little bit more about you other than, um, yeah, enjoying lots of different sports and and swimming being um, one main one. So if you weren't working as a sports dietitian and you went down a completely different career path, um, what do you think you'd choose? I'd probably be two. Uh, That's a bit greedy, Greg. I only want one. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But uh, I'd either be an economist Ooh. or an electric car mechanic. Wow. They're completely Ooh. unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well, my car needs some work. So, um, but it's, not, it's not an EV, though, Steph. Oh, that's right. Can oh. I only be in Come back when you've got a Tesla. Right. <laughs> Don't fit in that category just quite yet. The sports dietetics isn't uh, giving me that kind of income. <laughs> um, one of the things on your bucket list that you haven't yet done. I'm going to have to admit that I don't have a bucket list mm-hmm. um, and I'm trying to think of what I haven't done that I would like to do. Well, I mean, wh- one of the things that I, I would like to do that I haven't done that I'm in the process of doing is, is, is restoring a car. So mm-hmm. um, so just just kind of purchased that a couple of weeks ago and uh, I've done other stuff but nothing as big as a car. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I – What did you get? Always, uh, so I've got a Series 3 Land Rover. Mm-hmm. And you're converting it to an EV? Yeah. That's the that's the ultimate plan, but in the short term, it's to get it up and driving so it's not sitting in my garage taking up space <laughs> that can be used prior to converting it. But, yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the ultimate goal. Awesome. awesome. Battery prices are just a little bit expensive at the moment. Yeah. Um, what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? Uh, again, I've, I've been... Pretty privileged. The one sport that I am in absolute awe of um, and, you know, I, I would love to be able to do better and more often is, is rock climbing. Um, mm. I find that just so, um, yeah, from, a, from an athletic pursuit perspective, I love the challenge from a, mm. from a muscle physiology perspective. I think it's a fascinating um, kind of sport, not just the, the Olympic stuff, but some of the challenges that people do. You know, something like Alex Hoddle's, you know, kind of free solo climb of Al Capitan, like the physiology of that, you know, from a metabolics perspective just you know, fascinates me, um, you know, putting on my uh, anaerobic uh, kind of exercise hat on. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I'd love to do some kind of serious rock climbing, but it's just not something that's kind of in my makeup. I've got two longer arms and... And, uh, yeah, just more of an endurance athlete, unfortunately. Not scared of heights, though. Oh, absolutely petrified. (laughs) (laughs) See, I reckon I'll ask this. I don't get that. What? I'm not scared of heights. I'm scared of falling from heights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, like, I mean, I've I've, I've jumped off things and out of stuff. Yes, But uh, climbing with something that just... Yeah, I'm a risk guy, so, yeah, the risk is yeah, too high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm similar. I like the climbing too, but I am scared of heights. Um, so favourite moment from the um, Tokyo Olympics or the Paralympics, or you can pick one of each considering you tend to try and go for more than one option? Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to go for two at, at Tokyo because um, of um, connection uh, and mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, Karina's uh, medal at Tokyo, like I just know what went into it. Um, I know where she's come from. I know how hard she's worked. I know, um, you know, some of the, the different ups and downs she's had. So, you know, that was a real uh, moment that I was proud of um, from an involvement perspective, but just also proud that, you know, she was able to do what she was able to do um, and, and kind of get recognition for the for the years of hard work that she's had. Um, and then, you know, the similar for, for someone like Emma McKeon, um, who I've worked with for quite a while uh, and seen her grow up over a really long period of time and just to kind of finally achieve, you know, kind of the, the, the scale and the, and the, the um, immenseness of, of that, you know, kind of achievement. Um, and I don't think, you know, the Australian sporting public truly recognise, you know, what she did and, and, and the, the, the level that she's achieved at, you know, to be the, the, the greatest Olympic female athlete of all time. You know, that's a, a pretty mean feat, not just in swimming but in any sport. So I think those things, having worked with them and, and being there for that 100 freestyle and 50 freestyle and, you know, standing next to a coach at the time was, was just kind of a, a really kind of a great moment from the, from the, para, from the, from the Tokyo Olympics. Um, from the Paralympics, again, you know, again, I, I'm going to have to go swimming uh, and, you know, the boys' uh, points are relay where they broke the world record. And just to see the, the, the emotion uh, that they, you know, and the enjoyment they got out of it. Uh, again, you know, swimming is always seen as a, an individual sport, but, um, you know, the relays is that opportunity to compete as a team and, and um, you yeah, they really embraced that and were able to, to kind of get a result that was, um, you know, fantastic. Mm. Yeah. yeah cool you managed to get three in yeah there you go yeah yeah <laughs> i'm good quite, quite agree um and <laughs> last bit um do you live by any piece of advice or a particular um motto i haven't i haven't for most of my life but more recently um definitely in work um i i have started to um and, and, and it's more of a saying than a piece of advice um and it comes from uh, a really nerdy book that I read um, that was written by a famous statistician called George Box, and so George Box is a statistician is that of, of box pop, box plot fame. Yep, so he's one of the most famous uh, statisticians of all time. But where he made his name was industrial uh, optimization. So uh, throughout the 60s, 70s, or 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, in um, chemical and uh, industrial. Um, firms. Um, I think he worked for DuPont for a really long period of time. Um, and so he's got a book that's a, 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 well, he's, I don't know whether he published it or someone else published it, but it's a, it's a accumulation of his uh, best uh, publications and, and essays and stuff of him and his friends. And you know, in the introduction to that, there's a, there's a state uh, saying by him and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, it, it goes uh, along the lines of, you know, listen to the system and it'll tell you what needs optimization. Um, and so, you know, in this same vein from a supplementation perspective, you know, if you truly listen to the body uh, and you understand what performance, what's required from a performance perspective, you'll know what you need to optimise. Um, sometimes you may not listen to it in regards to, you know, you've got to train a bit more, uh, that's a bit hard, won't do that, or going to get a bit more sleep, you know, that's hard, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, yeah. if you truly listen and, and you try, truly hear it, you know the body will the the body the system will tell you 
what needs to be optimised. I think there's so many kind of areas in our field and, and you know, just in the general athletic pursuit environment that if we live by that, you know, it's going to be easy to optimise things. Mm. All right. Well, on behalf of both of us and, and all our listeners, thank you so much for your time, Greg. I think it was a really great discussion and, and hopefully will help people a lot in terms of, I guess, the way they think about supplements and whether they're um, likely to be beneficial for them and, and how they can go about that decision of working out, you know, is it going to be beneficial and is it worth it? Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Nah, thanks, guys. I, I really appreciate having me on. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. That was great. Thank you very much, Greg Shaw. Um, now I'm going to hand over to the one and only summariser, Dr. Al McCubbin. Mm, all right. Is that my official title now? That's Yeah, I, I like to mix it up, keep you on your toes. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll have to change my uh, CV to uh, sports dietitian and summariser. Yep. Yeah. So our question today was, would I benefit from supplements? Uh, and as we said off the top and, and during the interview with Greg as well, obviously that's not a question that you can just have a yes answer or a no answer to. It depends on the person, depends on the event, depends on your situation, depends on the supplement. To summarize all of this, I think the first thing I thought I'd start off with is that definition of what a supplement is. When we're talking about would mm -hmm. I benefit from supplements, what do we actually mean by supplements? And Greg referenced the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, definition on this. So the International Olympic Committee published a um, consensus statement on dietary supplements and high performance athletes back in 2018. And so the definition that they use in that paper that Greg so he didn't have there in front of him at the time was a food, food component, nutrient or non-food compound that is purposefully ingested in addition to the habitually consumed diet with the aim of achieving a specific health and or performance benefit. And then they go on to talk about four different categories of dietary supplements. So uh, one of them is formulated foods and sports foods. So these are products providing energy or, and or other nutrients in a more convenient form than normal foods. So this can be things like liquid meal replacements, uh, products you can buy off the shelf ready to drink that have you know added protein or vitamins and minerals and things like that, or ones that are specifically targeted for use around exercise. So things like sports drinks, energy gels, bars, and so forth. They also talk about functional foods, so foods that are enriched with additional nutrients or components outside of their typical composition. So they might be uh, mineral or vitamin fortified or nutrient enriched, so things like your protein fortified uh, muesli bars, for example. Then you've got single nutrient supplements and other components of food or herbal products that are provided in isolated or concentrated forms. So this can be things like your iron tablets, your vitamin C tablets, your multivitamins, um, that come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And then finally, you've got multi-ingredient products containing combinations of all of those things above um, that target kind of similar outcomes. So there are definitions of, of what a supplement is. Why would we take that? Well, possibly because uh, it's either very difficult or virtually impossible to get enough of that nutrient to optimize our body's stores to then go on and help us from a performance point of view, or simply that it's the most convenient way to take that nutrient, um, either in general to get enough of it or to get it at the specific time where it's necessary, for example, during exercise with a gel or something. So I think what Greg talked about is that optimization versus deficiency and talked about the fact that, you know, we have recommended dietary intakes, RDIs or RDAs, depending, depending on where you live, um, but they're designed to stop poor health from not having enough of a nutrient. They don't necessarily tell us 
how much we need to optimize our performance at the other end of the scale. And so that's where, as you know, people involved in sport, we want to optimize performance, just not um, avoid poor health. Um, but also being aware that you can take too much of anything, whether it's water, whether it's vitamins, minerals, or things like creatine, um, or caffeine, obviously, as well, which is more like a pharmaceutical than a nutrient. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, which of these nutrients do we need to actually optimize our body stores of to improve our performance? And that's going to be a little bit different depending on exactly what type of training and, and events that you're doing. Uh, obviously, energy, so the total kilojoules or calories is going to be important regardless. So that energy availability that we've spoken about a lot recently is important. Um, but then for the very short duration, high intensity sports where you're producing a lot of lactate and, and hydrogen ions, so that um, sort of anaerobic type work, then things like sodium bicarbonate or beta alanine uh, as buffering agents for those will be important. And I think we'll do another episode specifically on buffers down the track to, to give you a bit more information about that. Uh, if the event is a bit longer, so maybe up to say marathon distance, um, but the intensity is still pretty high, particularly at the competitive level, then things like carbohydrate can become really important to supplement because you just need more to um, achieve that performance. But then you've also got things like nitrates as well. And then for the really ultra endurance stuff, again, carbohydrates probably going to be pretty important. Nitrate, probably the jury's out whether optimizing nitrate stores are going to help in that kind of situation. Uh, and then we've got things that are lost from the body during exercise that um, we might need to replace as well. So things like water, obviously, we talked about that back in episode three, um, and sodium and other electrolytes, which we're going to do an upcoming episode around. Okay, well, we know which ones are important for different types of events to optimize, but is that an issue for you? Do you need to optimize that specifically? Well, that depends, obviously, on your habitual diet. So if you have a large meat or chicken intake, um, you're probably getting enough protein, zinc, uh, iron, maybe creatine as well, and probably supplementing with those things is, is potentially unnecessary. If someone has a very large vegetable intake, they're probably getting more than enough B vitamins, vitamin C, nitrates, uh, potentially, and some of those phytonutrients or polyphenols as well, which again, we'll do a future episode on those. But it can become a bit of a trade-off, you know, unless you're someone who's doing 40 hours of training a week and, um, you know, consuming four or 5,000 calories a day, you're probably not going to be eating enough food and enough variety of food um, to be able to get all of those things at once, you know, have enough meat to get the iron and then enough fish to get the omega-3 and enough vegetables to get the nitrates and so on. And so, you know, depending on what your habitual diet looks like might depend on which of those things that you might need to consider supplementing. Uh, so is it worth it supplementing with these things? Well, that's really a personal question that you have to ask yourself. There's not a right or wrong answer to that question. You do need to consider many things, you know, the costs. So they could be financial. Obviously, supplements aren't always cheap. There's the inconvenience, potential side effects of um, certain supplements taken in, in their supplemental form. Um, the health risks of having too much of something or potential contamination, and then potentially the anti-doping risk of contamination of supplements with banned substances as well. Uh, and again, we might do a future episode on that. Uh, in terms of the benefits that you get from supplements, uh, obviously that's going to be different from person to person, but typically in studies where we um, try and measure performance in the lab as a result of you know, supplementation versus placebo, the differences are usually less than 3%. Uh, they're typically sort of 1% to 2% in most cases for most uh, supplements. So, you know, if you're an elite athlete, you know, 2% is massive. 
if you're a recreational athlete who just wants to go out there and enjoy things, that's probably not that important to you. So that helps you kind of make that decision potentially. And also the, the cost of inaction. So, you know, for elite athletes, that's potentially crucial. You know, if I don't do this, you know, am I missing out from a performance point of view? For recreational athletes, that probably doesn't really matter too much. But for elite athletes, you know, they're racing for prize money, contracts, um, Olympic medals, you know, careers, endorsements, all that kind of stuff, then yes, that may well become important. Are there other potential unintended consequences? You know, does taking supplements give you potentially a false sense of security, whether that's a conscious thing or not? Um, and there is some evidence that taking supplements uh, may come at the expense of, of not trying to optimise dietary intake from food um, or making poorer overall dietary choices for health um, and to optimise those nutrients that are coming from our food supply. So coming back to our question, would I benefit from supplements? Well, there's not really a one-size-fits-all answer here. And I guess if you can't answer these questions for yourself uh, and you need some help with that, then you might need to seek out some expertise. Uh, and finally, I think there's a, a new paper out recently that talks about um, this kind of approach that has, uh, or mantra that's creeped in with nutritionists or dietitians over the last sort of 10 or 15 years of the food first approach. Um, and I think this paper is a really interesting one because it, its title is food first, but not food only, and makes that distinction that, you know, just because we say food first doesn't mean it's necessarily food only, and there will be a role for supplements. And in fact, if we classify sports drinks and gels and things, almost everyone in running, cycling and triathlon, whether they realize it or not, are probably using supplements to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, great summary. Um, very, very useful. So very good questions for our listeners to think about when going to the supplement store. Uh, so to follow up on this one, we are joined by someone we've had on the show before, Al, um, someone that you work with and someone that has been to the Olympics and she also does a few different sports in her you know, in that main sport. So I wonder if anyone's guessed who we've got. Yes, yeah, it's our first returning athlete guest. We've had Ben Desro mm. as a returning expert guest, but our first returning athlete guest is triathlete Emma Jeffcoat. So last yeah. time we spoke to Emma was, I think, our fourth ever episode of the podcast, episode 2B, um, you know, what should I eat before my long training session or race? Um and that, that was a great discussion with Emma, but that was, you know, sort of six months out from Olympic selection for the Tokyo Olympics. So we'll have a chat to her now that's been mm. run and won about her experiences of going to Tokyo and what she's learned from that sort of process and what she's up to now. And, of course, yeah. supplements. Supplements, yeah. Um, excellent. And, uh, yeah, for our listeners, just a reminder that you can check us out on all our social media platforms at The Long Munch, so Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And um, you can listen to us on all the popular podcast platforms. But until then, we will leave you in peace and we'll see you next week. See you later, everyone.